You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor Matt Myers. Matt, today we're going to talk about assigning Todd Frazier to the New York Mets, which is something I think we've been predicting for like two months. Uh, perfect fit for them. We're going to talk about what I thought was some really interesting data I dug up on Comerica Park. I think I've been talking about this on this show for like a year, and I finally went ahead and wrote it. We're finally going to dig into Comerica Park. Um, our friends Andrew, Simon, and Jason Bernard hacked away to a 56-game hitting streak using StatCast data, which I thought was pretty fun. And then finally... Uh, uh, this is actually, I guess, a data-filled show. Why do center fielders play center? Why do they get more batted balls? So I think those are all pretty interesting things. And we're going to start uh, with the newsiest item, which is Todd Frazier has signed with the Mets. We've probably talked about this on this show before. I mean, this just seemed so obvious. Uh, if you haven't heard, he's from Tom's River, New Jersey. I, I, maybe you've heard that once or twice. Um, I grew up next to Tom's River, New Jersey. My first girlfriend was from Tom's River, New Jersey. I'm familiar with the town. Wow, we're getting personal here, We Mike. really are. We really are. There's three high schools there. Um, anyway, Todd Frazier to the Mets is like the most obvious fit, only now maybe secondary to Neil Walker going to the Yankees, which hasn't happened yet, but which I think we all think will. Uh the only I wouldn't say surprise about it is that it is essentially uh, an admission by the Mets that David Wright is all but done, right? Which they have sort of basically refused to admit. Understandably so. He's the franchise player, very popular. But this essentially is their admission that saying we definitely not expecting to play this year. You can't count on it for anything. But there is an out here, right? Because they've got a left-handed first baseman in Adrian Gonzalez who is. Uh, at the tail end of his career, and they have a left-handed first baseman in Dominic Smith who hasn't proven anything yet. So if by some miracle Wright does come back, Frazier could play a little bit of first base. Maybe Wright could play a little bit of first base. Right-handed hitters. I don't think we're ever going to see Wright play again. But there's there's at least some flexibility there. Yeah, true. Fair point. Anyway, Frazier, um, you know, for those of you that follow me on Twitter, no secret, I'm a Mets fan. So we'll just lay that out there. Uh, I like the move. I think the Mets have had sort of a sneaky good offseason and maybe taking advantage of some of the conditions to really add some depth to their roster. And Frazier fills a, a big hole, uh, right-handed power bat at third base. It sort of checks off a few things and will imp- improve their defense. It's it's makes a lot of sense. I feel like if you're a listener of the StatCast podcast, then I'm already kind of preaching to the choir here. But Frazier, along with Joey Gallo, it's probably like my, my archetype of ignore batting average. It doesn't matter. Yes, he hit 213 last year. Who cares, right? He had an above average. Uh, the, can I tell you my favorite Todd Frazier stat? Do you know who the top 10 walk rate leaders were in baseball last year? The top 10 walk percentage leaders, right? I'm going to I'm going to tell you obviously that Todd Frazier finished 6th. He had a 14% walk rate. The other 9 names on this list, every single one of them is a superstar. Votto, Judge, Trout, Carpenter, Encarnacion, Bryant, Goldschmidt, Gallo, Rendon. Number 6 was Todd Frazier. Isn't that wild? Yeah, and he has such a weird year because he had his career low in batting average 213, but his career high OBP Right, um, 344 after a couple of years of like 308. And what's weird about Frazier is he has this reputation as a guy who strikes out a ton, but he doesn't actually strike out a ton. He strikes out about league average right now with like 21%, I think. What's interesting is that really his real, real weakness is pop-ups. Right. He led the league in infield fly ball percentage last year. Um, and he's never t- – this is actually a great trivia question for you. I just looked this up. Over the last three years, he is second in infield fly ball percentage. Do you know who's first? Uh, it's like Mookie Betts, I think, right? Somebody along those lines? 
his new Mets teammate, Jose Reyes. Oh, no. <laughs> that's amazing. All right. Well, that's not great. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Frazier has had kind of a weird, uh, I would say weird couple of years, but oh, this is what I was going to say. We talked about him a couple weeks ago. He had the most bizarre home road splits, like ever, last year. He had, like hit nothing at home and was pretty good on the road. I think he had the largest split uh, in baseball last year, and that's not really predictive of anything, but it was a thing that happened, and that's what kind of made his year really strange. And it was weird, but also like over the course of his career, his overall production has, has been remarkably consistent. Like He's been you know, consistently like a little above average in terms of weight of runs created plus. Yeah, you know, I, it's like last year he was 108, before that 104, 116, 122. You know, he's he's kind of, while the his arc to getting there has sort of varied, he's gotten there and been a useful player year in and year out. You don't think of Frazier uh, really for his glove that much. You think of him for power, right? But I, I do want to talk about the Mets defense for just a minute because an enormous part of the Mets' trouble last year was that their defense was, for lack of a better word, terrible, uh, especially in the infield. They had the worst shortstop defensive run saved at negative 24 they had the worst national league third baseman defensive run saved at negative 22 a lot of that was jose reyes wilmer flores and estrubo cabrera but now they're gonna have rosario playing short every day now they're gonna have frazier who is average to slightly above average at third base i think right there that is going to improve the defense by a lot and then you know we've talked about juan lagares in the past and i think you dug up some stats that really showed how bad this was for the pitchers last year yeah last year mets allowed a 278 batting average on ground balls, which was the second highest in the majors behind only Detroit. Um, so they were 278. Detroit was 294. League average was 249. And the Mets had the second largest gap between expected batting average on ground balls and batting average on ground balls. So their expected batting average was 222, and they allowed 278. So 222 was eighth best in baseball. So they were actually allowing really weak contact on ground balls, but an extreme number of those ground balls were getting through. So even if you're not going from bad to elite, just going from bad to average is going to be a huge upgrade. And I think Rosario, they actually have a chance to, and this is where I'm most bullish on the Mets improvement is Rosario's defense going from him potentially being an above average defender um, and going from Reyes basically to him could be a huge swing for them. Yeah, I'm unconvinced Rosario can actually hit, but we know he's elite. He had like top five sprint speed, I think, in baseball. Very good defender. And, you know, it's not just the infield. We talked about this at the outfield a little bit, too. Last year, the Mets outfield ranked 27th in outs above average with negative 10. And a lot of that was Cespedes, right? And I think we we had we had shown that Cespedes has dropped about a foot per second per year in sprint speed because he keeps playing through lower body injuries. Um, but, you know, obviously, Granderson was below average. Ligaris is fantastic. We don't know if he's going to hit or not, but he can he can catch the ball. And I think we're all hopeful that Mickey Callaway will have maybe a different approach with Cespedes and not make him play through injury all the time. Like, that should help, right? And, I mean, they have—the one thing the Mets moves this offseason have really done is giving them a lot of depth. You know, I mentioned that earlier, but, like, when the offseason began, I thought, you know, maybe the perfect move for them would have been to get Lorenzo Cain, right? But for what—essentially, for less than what Lorenzo Cain signed for with Milwaukee— they signed Bruce and Frazier and Swarzak. So they sort of like added a lot of pieces and sort of, I mean, like Bruce, I still think is a little bit of a, a square peg, but there's no question that they're much deeper. And now like Conforto's probably going to miss the first month of the season. And that's not, shouldn't really hurt their bottom line that much because they can have Nimmo start. Nimmo's going to be, I think he's going to be a good OBP guy. And they still have Bruce, they still have Cespedes, and Ligaris is coming off the bench in that scenario. Yeah, I think the, the move for Swarzak was really underrated. We, we, he had a, a top 20 expected weighted on base last year, tied with Felipe Rivera, and you know how I feel about Felipe Rivera. I would have rather had Swarzak than Wade Davis, right? I, I know the names are not anywhere similar, um, but 
that was a good pickup. And as you said, they've signed five free agents now and picked up a couple of options. And there seems to be this theory that the Mets haven't actually done anything at all. And I just don't think that's true. I mean, they they have added depth, as you said, because what they really need are their stars to stay healthy, right? We know Conforto's hurt, but they need Cespedes, they need Syndergaard, they need DeGrom, and they need to be deeper. And they've done that. And so now they've put themselves in position to be, uh, I think, a legitimate wildcard contender. So part of it was that if you look at their record last year, they were 70 and 92. But I never really thought they were a true talent 92 loss team, obviously, Everything that could have gone wrong last year for the Mets did. And if you look at them uh, from their actual wins last year to their projected wins via Steamer this year, they are plus 11. That's the second most in baseball behind only the Giants, who are in a very similar situation. And they are like right in this middle mix of like six different wildcard teams in the National League. Like I think we all agree the same three teams atop the divisions, Dodgers, Cubs, Nationals. And then you get into the middle, like anything could happen, right? Cardinals, Diamondbacks, Giants, Mets, Rockies, Pirates, Brewers, and then four or five teams bringing up the rear. There's that that middle ground where you just need to be in the mix in July, and then you can make some moves. I think the Mets have put themselves there. And the Mets also, I mean, they also have a lot of high-variance players. They have some players with modest projections right now that are baked into that, but, like, you know, it wouldn't be shocking if certain players, you know, guys like Mats and Harvey, who really have essentially projections of being, you know, essentially a replacement player, are, are well above that. So they definitely, even within the roster that they have, there's definitely some... Some some room for 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 growth. Am I nuts if I say right now I would pick the Mets as my second wild card in the National League? I don't think it's nuts. I'd go Cardinals first and then Mets second. Um, it's certainly it's it's certainly not nuts. Um, you know the the Diamondbacks currently projected for eighty five wins. I'm a little skeptical just because they're losing Martinez. Granted, they only had Martinez for half the year last year, but he was so good for them and really like kind of took them to an, another level in the second half. I'm just I'm not sure about the rest the rest of that lineup. The Giants, I mean, we look at the projections for them, and they're pretty strong. They're basically, it's they're, the projections are basically saying that Panic and Crawford are definitely going to return to their like 2016 level, which is, I mean, they're not none of those guys are old, so it's it's reasonable. But um, they're they're, I mean, the two teams are actually very similarly constructed. A lot of guys who were superstars like four years ago, yeah. who are still kind of like good now. The Mets, the Mets, and the Giants. That is, and they, and they both just spent months last year without their aces, right? I mean, that's exactly what happened to both of those teams. Um, I think the projections are a little bit low on the Brewers. Only seventy-seven wins. That feels light. But also, I think the Brewers' rotation kind of terrifies me right now without Nelson. If they do get Darvish or Arietta, which I expect they will, that that will change. And that's the thing about all these projections is there's still there's still room for for deals to be made. I you know I could see the Rockies making a move. I could see the Brewers making a move. You know the Mets could still make a move. The Mets I could see making going and getting a starter uh, based on where the they absolutely where, where the where the where the market is right now. A Cobb or a Lynn or somebody like that would fit the Mets uh, extremely well. So anyway, go Mets. They've actually made some moves, and I think I think they're getting a little undersold. Uh, by their fans, but they are squarely in that mix as far as I'm concerned. Should be interesting. The NL wild card race. Uh, it's going to be great. Should be interesting. <laughs> and that, by the way, I think the Phillies could actually like do something crazy and get back into that race this year as well. Can we talk about? Can we talk about the Tigers? I'm so excited about I, this. You know, I feel like I've been. <laughs> Mike has been teasing his his hypothesis about Comerica Park for I don't know two years now. Uh, so, you know, there are some quotes in this article I, I got um, from Alex Avila and JD Martinez when they were still on the Tigers. So that should tell you a little bit about it. That's the that's the depth of the reporting that Mike has been going through here. He's been you know been working on this for for literally months. But this is this this was fascinating. So why don't you explain a little bit and then we can we can talk about it. As you know, uh Comerica has this reputation for being an extreme hitters park and that's because center field is so so deep. And and we, you know, I'm not saying Excuse we me, extreme pitchers park. Is what I should say, and, and I think that we have have certainly played into that by talking a lot about instances where Miggy, in particular, has lost, you know, batted balls with 
hit probability of 98, yada, yada, yada. We've even talked about that a lot on the show, how like it swallows a certain type of bad ball Camerica gets swallowed and why, partially why Miguel Cabrera is regularly among the league leaders in expected uh, weight on base versus actual weight on base. I think you're right that we have sort of uh, propagated this a little bit because now we can measure the uh, distance of every single bad ball. So I will give you a one stat that will lay this out exactly. So last year, over 2,200 batted balls in the major leagues were projected to go at least 410 feet. As you'd expect, most were hits. As you'd expect, most of those were home runs. On those batted balls that were projected to go at least 410 feet, the major leagues hit 987. So basically 99% of those were hits. Only 28 of those were outs, and 10 of those came in Detroit. No other ballpark had more than four. You know, imagine what it must feel like to crush a ball more than, 10, more than 410 feet and have it be like an F8. Like that's got to be just absolutely crushing. And, and that was the uh, what was the uh, what was it that uh, Bobby Higginson called it? Comerica National Park. When it, when it opened years ago, he was like Comerica National Park, which I thought that was hilarious because it is it's enormous out the center field. And so we thought about that for a while. And I, I remember thinking when Martinez got traded to Arizona, uh, everybody's first thought was, "He's getting out of Detroit. He's going to Arizona. He's going to mash." And he he did mash, uh, but it wasn't because he got out of out of Detroit. He actually hit the ball much better in Detroit last year. And that got me down this whole entire rabbit hole. Uh, Let me give you a couple of stats here. If you look at the Tigers in 2017, they outscored themselves on the road by 97 runs. They scored 97 more runs at home than they did on the road uh, for the Tigers hitters. That was the fourth biggest gap in baseball behind the Rockies and Diamondbacks, unsurprisingly, and also Texas. They had the third largest home field slugging advantage last year, plus 81 points behind the Rockies and D-backs, unsurprisingly. They had the fourth largest home field weighted on base average uh, advantage behind the Rockies and D-backs and Rangers. So you start looking at that and you're thinking to yourself, what's what's going on here? And then you look at the individual players, and I thought this was really interesting. J.D. Martinez last year, before he got traded, had a 467 weighted on base at home and a 348 on the road. Same thing for his Detroit career, 408 at home, 363 on the road. Alex Avila, the same thing, 415 at home last year, 316 on the road. I believe we talked before about Miguel Cabrera's wild home road splits last year. 351 weighted on base at home, 277 on the road. Uh, it hasn't been quite that wide for his career, but you know, going back a decade, 418 at home, 391 on the road. Even Jose Iglesias, who is uh, you know not exactly a big slugger, slugged 398 at home last year and 338 on the road. And all this starts to add up. And then I looked at it from the pitcher side. Did you know that the Tigers pitchers allowed the most runs in baseball at home last year, 462. I would have thought the Rockies probably, right? But it's not. It's the Tigers. Uh, on the road, they only allowed 432, the seventh most. And if you look back at weighted on base over the last decade, the Tigers hitters have performed better at home every single year. Now, most teams have a home field advantage. That's fair. But if you look at the gap over the last 10 years, they've had a 344 weighted on base at home, a 319 weighted on base on the road. The resulting difference of 25 points is the fifth largest home field advantage in baseball. That's really cool, right? I mean, it's not what you'd expect from that part. Okay, so now you've got the buildup. What is the reason for this? My theory, I believe that it has a fantastic hitter's eye, right? I think that it's it's a place that's really, really easy to see the ball and square up the ball. Um, and one of the reasons I found that I've got some quotes from these players, I'll share with you in a second, but did you realize that in addition to all the, the slugging success, it's got a, a negative strikeouts park factor? It's actually harder to strike out there than it is in other places. So listen to this. Last year at home, uh, remember, the, the Tigers were not a very good team last year, right? So I think people see like, oh, they're crushing the ball. What's wrong? This doesn't make any sense. Last year at home, the Tigers struck out 19.6% uh, of the time. That was the 22nd highest. And on the road, they struck out they struck out 23% of the time. So that's a gap of like almost four points. Only the Rockies hitters, and we've talked about Coors Field ad nauseum, uh, had a larger. If you go back over the last decade, 
The Tigers hitters at home struck out 17% of the time. Only Kansas City did better. And on the road, 20% of the time. So right away, that says to me, you can actually see the ball better there. So you can see it better. You can square it up better. Exact same thing with the pitchers. Uh, we got some good quotes out of this. I'm going to share a couple of them here. Brandon Moss, who has never played for the Tigers, but has always crushed there. He's got 22 games in Detroit, eight homers, 667 slugging. Uh, he said, you see the you see the ball well there. It's a nice ballpark. It's got a good batter's eye, which is great. It's exactly the quote I wanted. Alex Avila said, there's nothing out there to distract you like some ballparks. Torrey Hunter, a couple years ago, when he was with, with the Tigers, he said, a good park to hit in is a batter's eye that is all black. At our park, it's dark green and some black, so you can pick up the white little ball. In two seasons for the Tigers, Hunter had a 353 weighted on base at home and a 328 mark away. Have I sold you? Totally. I'm, I'm, I'm all in on this theory. Um, I mean, anecdotally, of course, but if you look at you know the high home camera, essentially, at, at Comerica, you could see... What stands out about the batter's eye in Comerica is not just how how, how dark it is because it, it's not that different. It's really wide, so there's nothing like like when you're looking out to center field, you don't really get fans until you get almost to like right and left center field. Whereas in a lot of parks, you know the the batter's eye is really it's it's pretty narrow, so that your field of vision you're going to start to see fans or colored seats pretty pretty quickly if you tilt your head at all to, to the left or the right. Whereas Comerica, it seems and again this is anecdotal, but it seems a little a little bit wider, and you don't have like one of these big, colorful scoreboards that's really in your your line of sight either. Yeah, I think that makes a, a big difference. And if you look at, for example, uh, expected weighted on base, the Tigers at home had a three forty six expected weighted on base and a three oh eight on the road. The venue itself, so all, everybody coming through home and away, had the highest expected weighted on base. And I remember uh, that that was a little off to some people because remember the Tigers weren't that great last year. But they had the second highest actual weight on a base. So most of what I've talked about here actually has very little to do with StatCast, right? It's just literally the performance. Um, there were two other things that stuck out to me about Detroit. That not, neither of these actually made it into the article. Uh, but this came with, we were talking to a, uh, a pitcher recently. And he said, and this doesn't really mean anything, but I thought it was really interesting. He loves the dirt in Detroit. It's so weird, right? It's like the dirt, it just makes you feel good. Some places, like you kind of sink into there. It's like Detroit's got the best dirt. I don't know what to make of that. I found it really interesting. The other thing I thought maybe was true was that uh, so Detroit and Arizona both have the dirt path right from the mound to home plate, and my initial thought was well those are two hitters parks right maybe that makes it easier for the batter to see and maybe it does but the pitcher said he loved pitching at those parks because it made it easier for him to focus on the plate so I don't know if that has an effect at all I just there's like no shortage of interesting things to me about Comerica Park uh, yeah it's this is it's one of the more interesting sort of uh, discoveries we've made about. Uh, about Statcast uh, since its inception in 2015, sort of like unpeeling the onions or unpeeling the right. onion around that is Comerica, Comerica Park. One thing I should mention, going back to that Bobby Higginson quote, um, they did move the fences in, uh, early in, le- in very early on yeah. in, in left. I think in left field, like the first couple years, it was like they, they, really cavernous. They moved the field. bullpen, I think, is what they did. Right. So, so people say to me, "Oh, the, you know, the hard hit rates are higher at Detroit," and I guess my answer is. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, look what's happening. If you see the ball better, you're gonna hit the ball. You're gonna hit the ball better. Uh, let's uh, let's briefly, not briefly, but let's move on to a, uh, a interesting idea. I thought that our friends Jason Bernard and uh, Andrew Simon had. Can you hack together a 56 game hitting streak? Right, and they use this using Statcast data, and uh, Statcast is of course powered by Amazon Web Services. So here's the idea. I think you can you can probably explain this a little better than I can. But you know, obviously, 56 games. Joe DiMaggio, that's been the record forever. No one's reached 40 since Pete Rose had 44 in 1978. No one's come within even 20 games of DiMaggio since Jimmy Rollins had 38 uh, more than a decade ago. And so what I think they were trying to get to here is, can you fill in the gaps of guys who had like good hitting streaks with like a game off here or there? 
uh, by looking at balls where they crushed it using hit probability and should have actually been a hit, but but they were robbed. And I think that's a really fascinating idea. Yeah, basically what they what they what they did was they they tried two two different methods. The first one they called the stat cast boost, where essentially they took if you had if you had a streak of games you had a hit and maybe there was one or two gaps. If there was gaps in between, if you, there were gaps in between, they gave you credit if you exceeded a fifty percent hit probability. So uh, if, the, if the player failed to get a hit or put a ball in play with a hit probability of at least 50%, the streak ended. So what did that do? Well, the biggest boost went to Francisco Lindor, who went from a 13-game hitting streak to 33, filling in five hitless games where he had a hit probability of at least 50%. Um, over the course of the StatCast era, we get uh, Freddie Freeman from 30 to 44. So he matches Pete Rose. Um so there's that's basically the best we we could do using that method was 44. So not even getting to uh, the the full 56 game hitting streak. I, re- I like this idea because we've talked a lot about you know quality of contact and skill and outcomes, and we know that the successful outcome is not just based on what you do. It's also based on what other people do, right? It's based on the defense. So you know I, I get it. If you're looking for a hit, you'd rather have the bloop than a crushed liner. But if you're talking about a guy who went up and did something that should have resulted in a hit every day, you know, if you slam a ball into the gap 400 feet away and Byron Buxton hauls it down, I still feel like you get some credit for that. So that's what they were trying to do here. But what I found really interesting is it was really hard to actually make it work, right? So in order to get to 56 straight games, they had to drop it from a 50% hit probability to a 29% hit probability. That was the only way over the last three years they could get it to 56 straight games. Uh, and that would have been Francisco Lindor, who had to get 14 hitless games filled in. I guess that tells me a little more, something more about Joe DiMaggio. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, and, and it also speaks to the uh, the way cha- strikeouts have changed the game. Basically, the, the rise of strikeouts have made it all but impossible for someone to approach 56 games. Right. So the, the first method they did was just filling in hitless games and otherwise impressive streaks. The second method they did was to get rid of real-world outcomes entirely. Forget hit-out error on any batted ball and just look at hit probability on all balls. This actually made it considerably harder because if you think about any hitting streak, there's probably going to be a 5% bloop single that keeps your streak alive somewhere. Uh, in order to get to 56 games here, they had to drop the minimum hit probability to 23%. And uh, that would actually get Xander Bogarts, of all people. The final three games of 2015 and then the first 55 games of 2016 would have had a 58-game hitting streak if the only requirement was a batted ball of at least 23% hit probability in every single game. But then, of course, it goes over two seasons. Does it really count? Let the hot takes commence. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting. And what this has done is just reinforced my idea that that is an absolutely unbreakable streak. No one will ever do that again, what Joe DiMaggio did. Yeah, we have actually a, like, a little mini-series. And this is part of the mini-series we're running on the site this week. Of, I'm looking at unbreakable records. Today, uh, Joe Posnanski wrote about Nolan Ryan's two unbreakable records, which are the all-time strikeout record and the all-time walk record. See, I didn't even know that. Good unintentional promotion by me. Uh, but that was by our friends Jason Bernard and Andrew Simon, uh, who do great work for us here on the StatCast research team. There was something else that we did uh, that I thought was kind of cool. and I was. This is all inspired by a blog post that our friend Tom Tango had done a, a couple of weeks ago. And it, it got me thinking about center fielders versus corner outfielders. Now, obviously, center outfielders are intended to be the best defensive player uh, in the outfield. It doesn't always work out that way. There's seniority and injuries and whatever, but that's the general idea. As you'd expect, center fielders get to a ton more balls. If you look at the last two seasons, center fielders have made almost 23,000 putouts. It's about 40% of all outfield putouts. Right fielders have made almost 19,000 putouts. It's about 32%. Left fielders, approximately 17,000 putouts, 30%. That means that the average team's center fielder makes 81 more plays per season than the corner outfielder does. Now, here's the question. Why? 
right? Is it because there's more opportunities to hit to center? Is it because the opportunities to center are easier? Or is it just because the center fielders are more skilled? What, I mean, which which would you think? Well, there's also yeah, I know you know the answer now. Well, but, but there's also the idea uh, of the center fielder gets to call people off, right? So that's there's some truth to that. So I'm they sure. Probably, I mean, I wouldn't say that's that doesn't count for 81. It may not even count for 40, but it probably counts for a few. I'd say it counts for you know one every, being the captain. I guess. One every three, which is also just any routine fly ball. You get to, you sort of get right away, or you know you get the Kelly leaks. Yeah. You want to just right. uh, vulture uh, opportunities for, for everyone else. But I'm 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 going off course a little bit. So. You know, which one of the three is it? I don't know. Take us through it. It's, it's, it's mostly more opportunities, but it's not just that. If you look over the last, everything we're going to do here is over the last two seasons. Uh, so over the last two years, the, the center fielder has received almost 25,000 opportunities for catchable balls. Right fielders just under 21,000. Left fielders just under 20,000. So right away, you know, a huge part of it is just there are more balls going to center. But that only matters if those balls are more difficult, right? If they're all very, very easy batted balls, and it doesn't really matter if there's a thousand more. You could put anybody out there. And that was the hard part. We've never really had a good way to measure that until this most recent season when we introduced outs above average and expected catch probability. Uh, and if you look last year, it's actually pretty simple over the last two years. If you look at every batted ball hit to center fielders, the expectation was that they would catch 88.6% of those batted balls. In right field, 87.5%. In left field, 87.6%. So slightly, slightly different, like one percentage point easier in center field. But it's not a lot. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's where the like them getting to call off people comes into play right Maybe. there. Is Maybe. them just sort of being able to claim the really the easiest fly balls. So we know that there's a ton more opportunities to center and that they're slightly, slightly easier, um, but not really by that by that much. And what we know right now is uh, the average center fielder, like I said, makes 81 plays more than a corner outfielder does. And just based on these ex- expected numbers, they're expected to make 75 more plays than a corner. So that means that about 92% of a center fielder getting to more balls is entirely based on the opportunity and difficulty of the balls presented to them, which I thought was really interesting. I didn't think it would be that high. Obviously, skill uh, it comes into play here. If you look at just outs above average, center fielders were plus 6.2 outs above average, left fielders minus 4.8. Right fielders minus 1.5. I was kind of interested to see the spread between left field and center field. Or excuse me, left field and right field. I thought they'd be a little more even, uh, but clearly they're not. I guess that makes sense. You have like Mookie Betts doesn't go to left field. It goes to right. Hayward plays right. Uh, you know, left field is more of a uh, platoon situation, I guess, more than anything these days. And I also wonder if there's, um, you know, obviously Fenway comes to mind immediately, but I'm trying to think of like, part, are there more quirky left fields like that that could skew some of these expected outcomes? Maybe, but I don't know. I mean, Fenway obviously stands out, but it's it's interesting, right? And then what is really, I think, fascinating is when you go back to the difficulty and you break it down into three categories, easy, difficult, easy, medium, and hard, right? So easy would be balls of the catch probability above 90%, medium would be between 40% and 90%, and hard from 0% to 40%. And it really is in the medium and hard categories where center fielders set themselves apart. They're better and easy as well, but you know we're it's negligible. We're not talking about huge differences here. If you look at medium, right? So balls of the catch probability between forty percent and ninety percent. Uh, most, all three positions were expected to catch seventy-one percent of those medium difficulty balls. Seventy-one percent. Center fielders caught over seventy-seven percent. Right fielders caught 71%, so basically scratch, and left fielders caught only 68%. So right away there, you can see that's a big gap. And if you translate that now, it's above average. For that category only, center fielders are plus 232 outs. Right fielders are four, which makes sense. Left fielders minus 72. And if you go to the very difficult category, 0% to 40%, it's kind of the same thing. They are all expected to catch about 17% of those balls. 
Left fielders catch only 12%, right fielders catch 16%, and center fielders catch 22%. So that's where they're really making their money. These, there's not a lot of these comparatively to the easy ones, but these are the ones where they really can get to while the other positions can't. Yeah, that actually sort of stood out to me that for center fielders, that actually their their, their biggest advantage actually seemed to be on the, the medium fly balls, where they were like their difference between actual and expected was 6.4, whereas on hard it was 5.3. So it actually it almost seemed like that 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 class of ball is where center fielders really distinguish themselves. Yeah, and I think that makes sense because a ball between forty percent and ninety percent of catch probability is in theory a catchable ball every time. If you look at uh, the way we've grouped this between zero percent and forty percent, there is a difference between a one percent catch and a thirty nine percent catch. So I, I don't actually have the breakdown that deep. I bet you that could skew that a little bit, but I don't imagine it would change like the greater takeaway here, which is that for center fielders you get a ton more opportunities. They're slightly easier but you also are better. There's a reason Kevin Kiermaier is not playing left field, right? Buxton is not playing left field because uh, they're out there and they're making a difference on these extremely difficult batted balls. Um, you know, we'll see a team like uh, the uh, the Brewers this year basically going to be having two legitimate center fielders out there. We'll see how that, that how that manifests itself. Three, if they keep Brett Phillips or Keon Broxton and, you know, put them in the corner for like defensive purposes, that could be arguably the best defensive outfield in baseball. Good point. That's our show for this week, the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks for listening. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion. Championship team.